At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friends. Always good to talk to you for another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's one of those worlds, John, where some people, unfortunately, are out of work. I am blessed that uh, I have quite a bit of work going on. I just got back from another trip to D.C. And, you know, it was a good trip. People were abiding by the mask rule and respecting space, but uh, it did give me an opportunity to get some work done and and actually film another episode of Air Crash Investigations, which will probably air after the first of the year. So that's what I've been doing, John. What about you? Well, I'm staying locked down. Massachusetts is in the midst of a, a real strong comeback, and it's pretty widespread this time. The first time around, it was clustered. Now it's pretty uniform across the state, or the eastern part of the state. Yeah, our, our numbers out here in Colorado have gone up as well, and we're in the midst of curfews and everything else. And again, it's one thing to try and wait for a vaccine and, and that kind of stuff, but no matter if there's a vaccine or not, part of the solution to all of this is people. And that is, again, respecting all the rules that have been put in place to protect us and our safety. And, you know, if everybody plays by those rules and we can get through this period until the vaccines are out there, I think that, you know, we'll all be better off. But you have the rogues out there. And, and again, I mean, we see it. The numbers have gone up and I'm not an epidemiologist, but it's just common sense and logic. Why take unnecessary risk? Why expose yourself? And when I travel, I know that when you traveled, but when I travel, I try to respect all of those things that I've learned about this virus with regard to touching the mask and everything else. And the mask is one of the biggest spreaders if it's not used properly because people touch stuff and then they touch their mask and take it off and then they put it on the table, stick it in their pocket, and put it back on and take it off. And they do that multiple times a day. You don't know what you've just contaminated your mask with 
in between washing your hands after you put it on a table in a restaurant or stuck it in your pocket. Who knows what's been in your pocket? And Lord knows, John, what's been in your pocket. <laughs> so you really have to uh, to be careful. I knew that was coming. Of course you did. Yes. That was a perfect setup. I have been going through mass like crazy. I just ordered another 30 N95s. And boy, are those things pricey. Yeah, well, right now they're in big demand because of these spikes. And we all have to do our part to try and curb this. So it's crazy, my friend. It is very crazy. As well as having a big week in uh, aviation news with the return of the MAX, as you and I had talked about, we knew it was coming. Um, We were fortunate enough to get briefed on it before the fact. And um, now it's going to be interesting to see its return and how well it is acclimated back into the online fleet. I know that a lot of airlines, folks that I've talked to, were very happy about it. You still have some of those folks out there that will say not only no, but hell no, I'm not flying it or I'm not flying on it, which, again, they say that without really understanding all the facts like you and I tried to preach. Yes, getting the passengers back is going to be quite a chore. And, you know, the airlines, after the Family Assistance Act, actually did a pretty good job of communicating with the families and sort of put a a knowledge blanket on that so the families didn't strike out back at the carriers. But now, and the FAA helped because the FAA, would, after the accidents, would give the particular airline sort of a an inspection and give everybody the warm, fuzzy feeling that the airline was good. But now, with the FAA being so tarnished, it may take the manufacturer to step in and, and handle the families. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when you look at the the certification process, the review that it went through, the scrutiny that it not only has been under for the last 20 plus months, but the scrutiny it will continue to have, you have multiple foreign regulators involved as well. So this isn't all on the FAA, this love bin that was the sexy story of the media, which was basically phony, and the fact that Boeing was self-certifying just demonstrated a level of misunderstanding and ignorance in some cases. But you got IASA involved, you got the Canadians involved, the other foreign regulators. So this is a shared responsibility. And when you have all these foreign regulators coming together who have agreed on a standard, they've agreed that all of the, the changes that have been made, and it's really been just software changes, it's not hardware changes, they didn't move the engines, they didn't put on another AOA probe, They just changed the software and the way it works, reacts, and reads indications. This is a shared responsibility, and people should be feeling very comfortable with the fact that multiple organizations with high levels of expertise have scrutinized this return to service and that they have done everything humanly possible to get the airplane in a condition where not only it was already safe to begin with, they've made it even safer but it should provide a level of confidence to the flying public that they are getting on the airplane, an airplane that is probably the safest airplane flying. It was kind of like that with the 787, with the battery issues when it was scrutinized. The DC-10 went through that when they had cargo doors blowing off and they grounded that airplane. 
and looked at it from a certification perspective. So while this was a disastrous thing and a tragic circumstance that, uh, that required this, there's a lot of lessons that I believe have come out of this that not only the FAA, but of course, other foreign certifying authorities have learned about going forward when they certify an airplane, what needs to be looked at beyond the obvious. And what needs to be trained. Yeah, training is going to be a big issue. And you and I are going to have a discussion about this as we go forward. Yes, but it was clear to me in the time we spent in the simulator that how much training really played a role in this accident or lack of training played a role in the accident. But you and I did a show previous where we talked about the maintenance aspects. And I'm still concerned about that, John. I'm concerned about the folks that are going to be working on this airplane, especially for forward carriers, because of the, the shortcomings we saw with Lion Air and the fact that their mentality over there was, yeah, you got a sick airplane, but just milk it back to Jakarta. That kind of attitude is what set this airplane and the, this crew and these passengers up for disaster. And that's going to be a key. And then, of course, any hiccup with any of these airplanes as they get acclimated back into the fleet, if you have an engine shutdown or you have a pressurization problem, I can feel it now. I can see it. I can hear it. They're going to blame Boeing. See, it's a bad airplane. And it's not the bad airplane. It is the return to service by the folks that didn't do things the way they should have been. Fortunately, Boeing's got a very intense program to try and mitigate, if not eliminate, those types of issues. Yeah, you know, Boeing said in the, in the meeting that we had 200 man hours to get the airplane back out of storage. United yesterday announced that they have uh, allocated 1,000 man hours per airplane to get it back into service considerable amount of work they're going to go do in their airplanes to make sure that they don't have any problems. And I think that you and I, when we do a little bit of research with a, a United or somebody like that to see what is going to be done in that 200 or 1,000 man hours, I think that that would be a, a great show because we can at least describe and, and educate the flying public as to the amount of detail that's going into getting these airplanes back in the air. Yes. It's going to be a challenging time in January for the airlines, January and February, back with another another big dose of virus, a traditionally flat period of time for travel. So it's going to be a, a tough time for the airlines to weather all of this. Well, I, I know that you and I, uh, we just did a show recently about pilots and mechanics and basically the industry and some of the issues we're seeing with drugs and alcohol proliferating in some of the outcomes of these accidents that we've been investigating. Of course, alcohol has always been an issue and been around for a while in aviation. We're seeing more pilots getting trap-lined going through TSA not only here in the United States, but worldwide. That seems to be an issue that, of course, always gets a lot of attention. But in my investigations, uh, not only of the large car air carrier accidents, but of course, the general aviation and business aviation that I'm doing, we're starting to see an increase in a variety of prescription 
legal and illicit drugs showing up in tox screens and that kind of stuff. And I think we had a very good discussion in our past show, but you and I also talked about the fact that we wanted to take this maybe to the next level. And of course, being based out here in Colorado and having an office up at the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport, I've been fortunate enough to to meet a lot of folks. And several years ago, I met a guy that I am very honored to call a friend and a colleague who is a forensic psychologist. Because in in talking with with our guests that we have on today, Chuck and I got into these discussions. And if I had a question, we would talk about it. So I thought that this would be a great discussion with him to educate the folks that listen to our show, because there is you and I are always talking, John, about the backstory. That is the stuff that you never see in the front story. And Chuck, in the business that he's in, he sees that backstory. He sees these things that aren't sexy. He sees the things that are detrimental to aviation. But he also has a responsibility and a job try and fix those issues, just like you and I try to identify cause and effect so that we can enhance safety. So I want to introduce to our audience, Dr. Chuck Dennison. He is, like I said, a friend and a colleague. He is an active pilot. I almost said, Chuck, that you were a backwoods pilot, but you are a backwoods pilot. But living in Laramie, Wyoming, you are an avid backcountry pilot. You own a Husky private pilot. I know that you fly, you commute down to work from Laramie down to the office. And I know you spent a lot of time in school. So we're going to put your CV up on our website. So if people want to find out more about you, they can hunt you down to our website. So we don't take up a lot of time because I've got a lot of questions. So want to thank you for participating, Chuck, and uh, welcome to the show. Good morning, John on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi northbound Alpha. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen, and uh, all the listeners, John and, and Greg, who I more affectionately call Crash Daddy. And as we always say at our office, I get to work with the people who are alive, and uh, Greg works with the other half. That's right. Well, I'm glad that you're on the show because you and I have talked about doing a show like this for quite a while. And one of the big issues, of course, is I see the people that come in our door to meet with you. And it's not just old guys. It's not the youngest. It's all across the spectrum, not only with an age group, but, of course, with a varied background and diversity. So to get into this discussion, can you just give us, I mean, you are a forensic psychologist. The fortunate thing in the way I know you is, of course, you specialize in a variety of different things, but primarily aviation. So can you give the listeners basically a a synoptic of what it is on the aviation side somebody with your credentials is doing with your patients? Sure. Glad to do that. And I'm classically trained in forensic psychology, been practicing in forensic psychology about 25 years and, uh, and neuropsychological assessment as well. And then about uh, seven, eight years ago, one of my friends said, hey, you should look into these 
programs that the FAA does for neuropsychological evaluations and, and related evaluation, evaluations for pilots because you're a pilot and you're a psychologist. That might all go well together. And sure enough, I started doing that, and it became my full-time practice. So now I work in forensics as kind of a secondary practice and get to spend many of my waking hours in the office with Mr. Greg Fife. As a patient? So yeah, so I I know a lot about psychopathology. Yeah, he psychoanalyzes me every time I walk in the door, John. Trust me, I've had more after action reports as I'm leaving than I care to have. So, well, we have pilots come in from uh, from virtually every state and even around the world from some foreign countries. And they come in and, and they think they're in bad shape. And I just point to Greg's office and say, look, at least you're not like that. <laughs> but, but more seriously, what happens is uh, these men and women have to come in and get these evaluations. And they, like I said, they travel long distances. And as soon as they walk in the office and they see Greg Fife's name, all they want to do is get the evaluation done so they can go have a photo with Greg. And that just breaks my heart. That's why you keep yeah. them around. That's right. See, I can draw them in and then Chuck closes the deal. (laughs) It has become an interesting study having Chuck in the office because in our business, John, and you and I talk about it just about on every show, the human factor side of the house, the human behavior, because accidents are all attributed in some way, shape or form to the behavior of the human, good, bad, or indifferent, that leads to decision-making, good, bad, or indifferent, actions, inactions, attitudes, and a variety of other things. And so I've had some good conversations with Chuck because when I'm trying to dissect someone's behavior or decision-making, I go to the man who basically understands it a heck of a lot better than I because he's got all these cool letters behind his name. So, well, and, and that's where the inevitable <laughs> overlap occurs, I think. And in our work in aviation, we can talk about the machinery of the aircraft. We can talk about regulations. But no matter what aspect we're looking at it from, we're all looking at human factors and how those are associated with aviation safety on one level or another. And, and mine is more internal because we're looking at how the brain works and how the personality styles are feeding into a pilot's behaviors, especially in tough situations, and their ability to learn. It's not that easy to teach a box of rocks to fly an airplane. You know, you do you do have to have some attention span. You have to be quick on your feet. You have to be able to multitask. These are the kinds of things that we're really looking at in aviation psychology. It's not the, this is not one of those how do you feel today kind of psychological practices, but rather it's looking at the, the neurocognitive aspects of how the human being operates. And what does the FAA expect of you, Chuck, then when they recommend or they've told a, a pilot or a mechanic or whoever, you need to go see somebody like you? The expectations of the FAA are designed around what the underlying issue is. So, for example, if we have a, a pilot who's had a head injury for, for one reason or another or been in a bad airplane crash and obviously survived it and is hoping to return to the cockpit, then we're looking at are all those domains of functioning, as we call them, uh, one's ability to pay attention, to multitask, 
to maintain short-term memory so that when ATC tells you to switch frequencies, you don't freak out. You can remember that new frequency long enough to, to get the job done. That sounds very simple, but in a person who has sustained a head injury, it may not be all so simple. Well, we have pilots who, uh, of course, just like the, the rest of the population, there are a certain percentage of pilots who have had trouble with substance abuse or alcohol abuse, and they either uh, could, get, could get caught or more likely will turn themselves in or, or a colleague will say, man, you really got to do something about this. You're showing up to work not looking like you're at the top of your game, and they can go into one of the programs that the FAA has, especially the one called the HEMS program. And as part of that, we look at, my part of it, is looking at how well a pilot is recovering in their mental acuity after they stop drinking. There's so many different things that, that we can do to our, our brains and our bodies that make us less able to make decisions or to execute our visual spatial functioning. All these things can be measured in one way or another. And that's what the FAA expects people to do, to show that they are up to snuff, so to speak, in these various areas of functioning. Now, I know that when you've had folks come into the office, you know, I've met them briefly, but I know that they spend not only a couple hours, but, you know, sometimes a couple of days with you. And they go through a battery of different tests that I've seen set up in the conference room. Can you just give us a, a brief discussion about, let's say somebody comes in, they did have a head injury because they were involved in a car accident. They were required to come see you. What kind of testing would you put somebody like that through to determine whether or not they can get back in the cockpit? Well, let's take the example of the head injury. And, uh, a person who's had uh, an acute head, head injury, had uh, a brain trauma, even even a mild concussion or moderate concussion, is considered a brain trauma. And there is a, a prognosis for any particular kind of injury. So if you get a concussion and it's your first or second concussion in your life, more likely you're going to notice symptoms at the beginning, and those are going to progressively get better as time goes along. So we're looking at that progression of the person getting back to normal, so to speak. On the other hand, if you have a pilot who is developing dementia or perhaps has Parkinson's disease, we've seen a few of those in the office this year, those pilots may be on a progression to something worse. And in fact, they most likely are on a progression to something worse to where they, they probably will not be able to recover their pre-existing level of mental functioning. So those are tougher cases. We're uh, often having to have difficult discussions with some of the older pilots who may be struggling with something that just is not likely to get better. I think most of the psychologists out there who are doing this work, there's about uh, probably 130 of us in the country, and three of us are pilots. And so I, I think it's difficult for some of the doctors to recognize how hard it is for a pilot to even consider looking at the end of their flying career, yeah. no matter if they're out flying the backcountry in a Husky like I do, or uh, they're, they're flying the big stuff and they're doing it for a living. So there are different test batteries that each pilot will have to go through depending on the nature of the injury or the nature of the underlying condition. 
But all of those test batteries are going to be looking at things like how quickly a person can process information, whether it's verbal information or something physical in front of them, like the set of blocks where they have to do the visual spatial reasoning and, and make a puzzle with those. One of the things that, that I often do with a pilot, especially if they've had at least 30 hours of training or more than a, a new student pilot, is I'll just have them tune in either to their home ATIS or AWOS, and I'll let them listen through it a few times, or sometimes we'll use the one ride at Metro Airport, let them uh, listen to the radio, and I'll give them a piece of paper and, and ask them to explain to me what they just heard mm. and what runway they would choose and why and what would happen if the wind changed 30 degrees. See, these are very simple kinds of calculations that all of us have to do every time we get into an airplane. If a, per- if a person is becoming flustered by doing such a, a normal task for pilots, then we have to look at whether they need more time. Perhaps they need some cognitive rehabilitation before they're ready to get that medical certificate reinstated. Mm-hmm. And then I know that we've had several pilots in for varying types of substance abuse. And I know some of, like you were talking about, some are self-disclosed, some are trap-lined and that kind of stuff. Are they going through similar type of behavioral rehabilitation with you, or are you just evaluating now that they've come off of that substance abuse if they too are, are capable of getting back in the cockpit? Or I know that you're probably evaluating you know, whether or not they, uh, they're a candidate for relapse and things like that. That's right, and, and I am just the evaluating guy. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, w- with the FAA and substance abuse or substance dependence issues, they are tough. Sometimes maybe too tough, but I think the idea is we don't want some disastrous thing to happen that's going to end up on some show on TV where they're interviewing Greg Fife, where he's having to talk about how the guy had the wrong medicine in his body or had been drinking beforehand, and that was part of the human factors problem. And so the, the FAA is essentially going to treat everyone equally. So we'll get a guy in who came to Colorado where you can buy marijuana legally and had a joint while he was on the ski lift one weekend. It was all legal. Then he goes back home and all of a sudden has a drug test and he's positive. And that's about the extent of his use or abuse issues. That one doesn't sound so serious. On the other hand, I've seen pilots who have been drinking heavily for 30 years and got away with it for a long time and probably went through a divorce or two with it, but still were able to keep the problem hidden. It was finally found out. And by that point in time, a person's cognitive functioning can be really compromised. So the FAA doesn't really have a way to know pilot number one from pilot number two in those examples. And so that's up to the psychologist and the psychiatrist to tease that out. And a lot of these folks have to go to both the psychologist and a psychiatrist because our our work overlaps, but we do some separate things. My thing is doing testing and evaluation, so I'm not like a treatment guy or a counselor or anything like that. They will have done all that before they ever get to me. (laughs) 
So let's say somebody somebody has come in because they had substance dependency. They've done all the rehab. They've done all the things. Uh, they come through you, and they actually get their medical back and can resume somewhat of a normal life. Does the FAA red flag them and trap line them and require them to do something at every medical that's different than just getting a physical? I mean, do they have to come in and see you again on a repetitive basis, or is that the end of it? They don't necessarily have to see me on a repetitive basis, but the FAA does keep them on a leash, so to speak. That's what the the HEMS program is all about. So those airmen will actually fly on a special issuance, and, and for the listeners who know anything about special issuances, it's essentially as good a medical certificate as anyone else has. It's not prohibiting them from any certain kind of flying or anything, so that airline pilot who's driving the big airplane with a first-class medical, he's going to have his first-class medical reinstated. But with the special issuance, it has to be monitored, and there are some processes for that. And that monitoring could happen uh, in a substance dependence case anywhere from probably I would, I would expect to see three to five years on the low end up to a lifetime of monitoring. And the idea there is that the pilot is continuing in his recovery or his sobriety, and the general public can be assured of a a good, solid level of safety with that pilot flying the aircraft. Now, I I know that, again, you've you've introduced me to a lot of these folks just because they walk in the front door and, you know, you and I are both co-located. So it's not just pilots. I think you've seen some mechanics. Yeah, those were not referred by the FAA, but for other reasons, I saw some mechanics. Perhaps their employer has some concern about it. Now, the the other big area is air traffic controllers. Oh, yeah. And, uh, man, any any of us who fly airplanes know how important it is to love and appreciate the air traffic controllers, even if they get snippy with us every now and then. They are, are really helping us stay safe and, and keeping the skies safe. So every air traffic controller goes through some very basic psychological testing during their application process. If any red flags are raised, they can be referred for secondary evaluations. Or let's say an air traffic controller is found to have a substance abuse problem or a a number of other conditions. They can go through a similar kind of evaluation process. The rules are a little bit different, but it looks about the same on the surface. For example, an air traffic controller, because he's not trying to maintain a pilot certificate, he's not going to have to do probably the, the COG screen, which is a test that's most specifically given to pilots. But the air traffic controllers may have to do a different battery of tests. And I noticed, you know, in the recent past, young people coming in the office, I mean, I'm talking 16, 17, 18 years old. I know some of them haven't even started their flight training yet. They came in with uh, a parent or two. What's going on with somebody like that? Well, what we're seeing now is the, the echo of medical practice in our society over the past 20 years or so. And that is that the condition of ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it became a very popular diagnosis, you might say, along with a number of different medications of a class called psychostimulants. That's like Ritalin, Concerta, Adderall. There's a number of them that are out there. It's pretty easy for any of us as parents to take a kid 
to the pediatrician and say, my kid didn't pay any attention in school or the teachers are complaining, my kid won't stay at his desk. Usually one of the first responses is to give that kid some kind of psychostimulant, which oddly you wouldn't think a stimulant helps people settle down, but, but it actually can. And it can help with attentional problems too. And so then these kids grow up and uh, they, in the past few years and until COVID hit, they were hearing all about the pilot shortage and what a, a good potential career there is out there in the next few years for airline pilots. And they get really interested. And so they go enroll in either a local training program or one of the big schools like Embry-Riddle. And they are ready to go. And usually they start their flight training and they don't bother to get the medical certificate right up front. And then they're ready to solo, and all of a sudden their instructor says, how about that medical certificate? They go and try to get it, and they legally have to reveal that they have this diagnosis in their past and that they've taken that medication, and that's what triggers these evaluations. The FAA wants to make sure that a person does not have what they call a, quote, aeromedically significant attentional deficit. And uh, so that's why you're seeing all these young people come into the office. It's It's been overwhelming that probably 25% of the practice now is younger people in ADHD evaluations. And when you think about that, 25% of all pilot evaluations falling into that class, that, that's a, a huge amount. Yeah. Is that disqualifying in the long run? Is it something that is a discouraging factor that parents and young people that are interested in flying, yeah, they should be concerned about it. Yes, they have to disclose it, but is that something that will really discourage them from not even going through the exercise because there's no chance they're going to be able to fly? It does discourage some of them. Now, I'll give a little plug here to the kind of practice that I have. First of all, it has to be aeromedically significant, meaning that it has an impact on that young person now. It's affecting their ability to take a test, to, to pay attention to these different domains of functioning that we look at. Developmentally, as that young person ages, we can begin to find out that maybe they didn't really meet the criteria for the, for the condition to begin with and they got medication, or maybe they did meet the criteria, but they're learning skills for making up for that, for compensating now that they're growing into their young adulthood. Another thing to remember is that adolescence doesn't refer just to teenage period. Adolescence goes all the way into like age 25. Our brain keeps developing. So a person who had trouble at the age of 15 might be quite a different animal when he becomes 18, 19 years old. So we're likely to see improvements rather than just giving up. I would suggest that any, any parents and pilot parents uh, or, or any kids who are interested in flying, not give up so easily because we've seen about a 90% pass rate in these evaluations. So it's very good. And it's not because I'm doing something to make it easy for them either. We're, we're all giving this test battery that's prescribed by the FAA. And frankly, it's a tough day to get through the test battery. Yeah, I know. I see these people in there and, you know, <laughs> you've, you've been chiding me about taking it. Hell, the only way I'm taking it is if I've had a few libations before, so I have an excuse for failing. <laughs> yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're never going to send Greg through the neurocognitive battery because he, he would lose everything he spent all these years building up, that's, mostly his pride. That's, 
<laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And then because we're in this COVID period now, Chuck, of course, there is a concern. I mean, you're seeing it on TV every day that not only are people coming down with it, some, of course, are experiencing the effects of COVID substantially different than others. For mild cases, some people end up in the hospital. And unfortunately, we've had over 250,000 people die now attributed in some way, shape, or form to COVID. Is the FAA concerned about some of the long-term effects of getting over COVID? Some of the, yeah, you got over it, you you feel good, you're getting back to normal, but is there some sort of long-term effect that could could pop up at any time and jeopardize your ability to, to fly or turn a wrench? Yes, it's absolutely a concern. Now we don't have this; we don't have it resolved. It's, it's still an open question. I can't speak so much for what the FAA is doing, as uh, there there are a group of neuropsychologists that I'm a part of, and on a regular basis, we're trading articles and research and smart remarks and you know whatever uh, you can trade with each other. We're doing this all the time, and and starting to see a base of material or literature growing now on addressing this question of what kind of long-term neurological effects might COVID be having. The problem with it is it's too early to tell. When you think about it, we're, we're barely eight months in, into a place where our world has been taking this seriously. You look at something like Alzheimer's disease, we've been looking at that for decades and dissecting brains and everything you can think of to better understand that disorder. So what we know now is that uh, when a, a person's in the active symptomatic stages of COVID, they're likely to get fatigue, obviously physical fatigue, but cognitive fatigue as well uh, that's being referred to as, quote, the COVID fog. That can bring with it confusion, especially in these cases where people have had to be hospitalized and be on a ventilator. Uh, it, it's very likely that they're going to have some uh, often referred to as ICU delirium, people who are stuck in ICU, they go through a ventilator, they're often unconscious for a good bit of that time, they they come back with some confusion. We don't know exactly how long that confusion lasts. So we know that there is this short-term disturbance of both the emotions and the cognitive functioning that, that can go along with it. Psychology Today published an article just back in August, so very recent, on the acute neurobehavioral symptoms of COVID. And the research they saw showed about one out of three patients have some kind of neurobehavioral symptom. So this isn't just about getting a fever and coughing and feeling like crap for a few weeks, even for people who aren't hospitalized. It may have longer-term effects. So uh, if we look at the long haul, what's going to happen? We don't know exactly. Uh, We don't know what neuropsychological functioning problems there may be. We're we're hoping that it's not going to be bad, but you just can't know until we look at some of these folks later on. Now, so far, the FAA has not said anybody who has COVID or or has had COVID is now going to have to go through some kind of mental or, or cognitive evaluation. That would really be overkill. 
But do you think that the FAA will ask that question, though? Have you had COVID? You know, because on the they're answering all these questions about, you know, all your neurological things, this, that, and the other. I mean, it doesn't ask me if I've had the flu recently, but given the the circumstances, the nature and circumstances of COVID and some of the longer term effects that it can have, do you think that they would end up asking that question and using that to trap line people in the future? Yeah, well, to, to get that specific, we'd have to update Form 8500, wouldn't we? And uh, yeah. to get the government to update anything is uh, like pulling teeth. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't yeah. say that, of course. So right now, if, if a person's been hospitalized and, and they go on to MedExpress, fill out their Form 8500, they're going to have to say that they've been hospitalized. They were hospitalized. Or, yeah. or that they've been to a doctor, a person that has gotten the virus and got through it and didn't go to a doctor the way the form is now, they would not have to say yes. that they've even had it, or uh, I, I suppose that they've even had the test. So I, I guess we're just going to have to see where that goes. I think there needs to be a lot more evidence out there that COVID has some kind of long-term effects on people's functioning before the FAA goes digging into everybody who's had COVID. I mean, sure. think about how big a backlog the FAA has now just trying to get through medical certification processes. If we try to add COVID to all that, I, I don't think the system could bear it, frankly, you know, yeah. no matter how hard these folks at the FAA are working. I don't think they could keep up with it. Yeah, well, I've been, I've been reading some other research about the Boston fog. And being that my co-host is from Boston, I'm always worried about the fog he's in all the time. Just like right now, he's faded off yeah. into the fog. I haven't I, heard him. At I haven't all. heard a thing out of John for a while. Maybe he's pondering which tests he'll have to take next time he visits. Us. I think he's taking notes. I feel honored that the last time I was in the office, you ignored me. So you didn't drag me in and, and put me through the battery of tests. Oh, that was you're one of the ones I ignored. Well, I'm sorry about that. I must not have had my coffee yet. I must not have had my Ritalin yet. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guarantee John, if, if he has a free moment, he's going to drag you in and test it. So, so that that leads me to one of my questions that I've been sitting on here: is that how many mechanics have you had come in, or others, ground personnel, come in because they failed a drug test? You know, especially in Colorado, with with the fact that you can. You can buy it. Well, now, now here's the thing, and, and one of you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to be an A&P, you don't have to carry a medical certificate, correct? Correct. And so uh, what that translates to is the FAA is going to be very unlikely to make a person go through the kinds of evaluations that we're doing because virtually everyone who comes in is either looking to get their medical certificate reinstated or if they're an air traffic controller, they're following some other instruction of the FAA, maybe for substance abuse evaluation. So the mechanic that I can think of that I saw just within the past couple of years was sent by a CFI who owned the airplanes and owned a flight school in another state and was concerned about basically whether he should have this mechanic touching his airplanes. I think that's the bottom uh -huh. line. So it was that kind of referral. Or uh, sometimes we'll have a flight school that will just uh, send someone over because they're not so sure that that student has his or her stuff together and whether the student is able to act in a, a safe and appropriate manner, regardless of the fact that they do have an active medical certificate. 
Yes, I met for cause an airline employee, since you're so close to Denver Airport, an airline employee in the safety-sensitive jobs with its mechanics and others that have failed a drug test, and uh, very often the airlines have a, uh, a second chance, one second chance, but they have to seek treatment, and that's what I was asking. Do you see any of that? Well, we will see some of that, but again, it, it's related only to the pilot's now, if a pilot has a failed drug test, they are almost automatically going to be considered substance-dependent. I know that may sound odd, but what's even odder to the doctors who, who learn this information is that we have ways that we assess and diagnose people and give diagnoses. The FAA has a set of diagnostic criteria that actually overrides what the medical or psychiatric community has established. What that translates to is that a person who's getting an FAA evaluation is going to get diagnosed with substance dependence much more quickly and easily than a person who's just going to a regular psychologist or psychiatrist because the criteria are different. One thing, you you uh, you, you mess up and, and you get caught with a hot test and you're going to be in trouble one way or another with some kind of substance abuse, substance dependence issue. So you're going to be in it for the long haul. But again, it doesn't mean that that, that pilot should give up his or her career, not by any means. There is generally a good pathway through it. It's just hard work to get there. Well, I know that you do a lot of folks, and, and I know that uh, when they come out of there, I can hear their remarks to you about the appreciation they have for you. And I have a great appreciation too, because you help pay the rent. So keep that coming. <laughs> Would you please? <laughs> now I know on January 1st, I'm going to get a notice that he wants to go up on the rent. That, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but, I, but I've, I, been, I've been really lucky in that there, uh, I think I said earlier, there are probably around 130 people who, do this work on a semi-regular basis where a lot of the psychologists will see maybe half a dozen pilots a year as a, an extra part of their practice. With the, what you and I have built there at BJC Airport, I'm seeing usually three pilots a week yeah. full-time. So it's it's been a great run, and I get to meet wonderful people from uh, literally every every state in the country and, and several foreign countries as uh, Greg has met some of those folks as well. So it's, uh, I mean, the aviation community uh, is, is small. I mean, we're tens of thousands, but we're still small in that we share something that we all understand. And I think when a pilot who's, who's in trouble medically one way or another knows that someone cares and understands that makes a difference for them. They, they're less defensive about the process. They they really make an investment in getting through it. And I tell you, I, some, I, I get to meet some people with very high character who come through our office, and that kind of helps balance out the level of character in my office. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was coming. Knew it was coming. Well, Chuck, I uh, I appreciate you spending the time with uh, with John and I. Of course, it's it's always educational. And I think for our listeners, if you do have questions and, and you are in the shadows and you really don't know who to turn to and ask, you you can look up Chuck's website, which is Forensic Behavioral Science. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, sir. No, it's not. It's okay. 
80. Oh, Maybe I should do this part, Greg. Yeah, you do this Maybe part. we need to give you one of those tests. Yes, <laughs> I think that's a good idea. <laughs> it is aviationpsychology.com. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, com. Yes. And uh, also, uh, just one quick little plug for the Airline Owners and Pilots Association. AOPA has just set up a new board, the Board of Aviation Medical Advisors. It's a board of five doctors, and I'm honored to be one of those five representing the, the mental health side of things. And so um, I think you're going to see more and more information coming out in, for general aviation pilots to, to help them with these questions of medical certification. I got my wires crossed with your old name. Jeez. You're living in the past, Mr. Fife. I am. Well, you know, see, the past was so nice before Chuck. So, <laughs> well, see, he's remember. I, I used to, I used to spend my life evaluating murderers, and now it's just yeah. Pilots. So it's got now it's just yeah. pilots, yeah. So it, uh, and you've had. I'll tell you what. The one thing that uh, I do find entertaining is some of the stories you tell because some of them are scary. But uh, then again. Aviation is scary, especially since you're in it. So, <laughs> Well, I, I guess we're probably out of time, and we don't have time to talk about uh, Greg Fife's skills at taxiing a tailwheel no, aircraft. No, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it as blackmail because it's a hell of a story, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. He wants to blame me, but I wasn't even in the airplane. So and at least your story. head wasn't. That's right. That's my story and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Uh, hopefully uh, the listeners got a little educated on, on some of the backstories and, and some of the things that you don't normally see. But again, if you think you have issues or whatever, the best thing to do is research it. And one of the best guys to research it with is Dr. Chuck Dennison. So, Chuckster, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the podcast and the work that uh, y'all are doing for all of us. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Low speed aileron, normal and auto. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Oh. Seat belt no smoke. Nine. Emergency exit minimum. Cabin alarms are not. Well, John, you know, one of the things uh, about having somebody like Chuck on is that these are the stories that you don't hear about. These are the issues that you don't really read about, even in accident investigation reports. It is more about people have these questions. I've had people ask me, you know, who could I talk to about this particular issue? And I've been very blessed to have met Chuck several years ago, and uh, we just we fit perfectly and he fits great because we uh, we are co-located. I can go over there and run stuff by him that my perspective is one thing, but then talking to Chuck, he's able to educate me on uh, a different perspective that I would have never even thought about, even as an accident investigator. And so I, I've been highly educated by him. I always appreciate him giving me at least the lowdown now. Some of the things he tells me and some of, of course, the things that he wants to uh, hold over my head is blackmail. That's a whole different story. But <laughs> keep in mind, I am still listening. Oh, geez. We got to get rid of you. So. Well, Chuck, the next time I come out there, you're in trouble because I want to know more about tailwheel. No, <laughs> it's going to take a heavy bribe.
it's going to take a heavy breath. Oh, just a good lunch will do. <laughs> That'll work. Well, my friend, John, thank you very much. It's always great uh, being able to talk on flight safety detectives. Again, I hope that uh, we can get this COVID resolved soon so that you and I can get back together in the same studio. I knew that you were taking copious notes. I could hear that pen just burning that paper up while, uh, while Chuck was talking. So uh, I know that you got some good information out of it. And for you, the listeners, we hope that you got some good information out of this discussion today. You can always contact uh, John and I through our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We always appreciate the feedback. If you got questions, um, especially with Chuck being on the show, if you want to, you know, target and, and get to him and you didn't get his information, just drop us a line. Uh, we'll be happy to respond. And then, of course, you know, the biggest thing is, is give us your ideas. What would you like to hear us talk about on the show? John and I are going to be getting back to dissecting some accidents. Uh, we've talked about it, and so now we're we're in the process of dissecting the accidents to give you the backstory and, and some of the intel. And Ethiopia, the uh, 737 MAX from Ethiopian Airlines, they're due out with their, quote, final report here in the near future. But we're going to be dissecting that report like we did with Lion Air. So that should be a very good show again. And it's all about human interaction with the airplane, of course, behavior training and things like that. And that a lot of that, John, from our briefing is going to be covered in, in the new training that's going to be required for the 737 MAX. Yes. They got, you know, four or five hours of classroom training and, and then two hours in the simulator. So it's going to be quite robust, the training to put that airplane back into service. And on the subject of people writing in, we got a couple of good comments this week from Europe. We have a, a person that lives in... Uh, the United Kingdom, near London, and uh, he actually gave us a couple of good accidents from the CAA that I am going to be looking up. And then we also had an individual that's under the IASA rules, and uh, he gave us a couple of accidents to take a look at as well. So we have a good, pretty good list now of pretty diverse accidents. So stay tuned. We're going to have a number of them coming up. Excellent. Well, and finally, before we sign off, we definitely want to thank our sponsors, Abemco Insurance and PAMA, the Professional Aircraft Mechanics Association. Is it maintenance? Yeah. yeah. PAMA. <laughs> Professional See, maintenance. Maintenance. I'm losing it, John. Today is one of those days where my biorhythms are all screwed up. I've Let's get that doctor day. back. Yeah, I know. He's... I don't give him any ideas because he will go into psychological profiling as soon as I walk in the office. So, but I want to just say that we really appreciate Abemco as our as our sponsor. They've been around for 60 years. They know the insurance business. And if you're looking to uh, shop insurance for a new aircraft or looking to change your policy and get a renewal, definitely talk to the folks at Abemco. And if you mention our show, Flight Safety Detectives, and you do side with them, you will get a 5% discount, which, again, when I'm shopping insurance, and of course, when I had a Bemco, they gave me these discounts for a variety of different things. And that's always appreciated because in this, uh, this time where insurance rates do creep up because of accidents and a variety of other things, 
every little bit helps. So definitely talk to the folks at Avemco Insurance. Yep, you can reach Avemco at avemco.com and backslash life safety. Or you can give them a call at 888-879-0389. And they are a good member of the aviation community. They sponsor parts of the WINGS program. They're, they're out and about trying to get their customer base educated so they don't have accidents. So they're more concerned with the overall health of the industry, not just people having accidents. So they want to make sure that there's a good element of prevention in there and they support it. So please, if you, if you need insurance, give them a call. Excellent day. Well, John, again, it's always a pleasure. Hopefully we'll get to see each other because I keep talking over you because uh, I'm not in the same room. And of course, you can't smack me or kick me under the table when you want to say something. So I throw something uh, at you when you throw that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We're going to have to figure out how to do that on Zoom. We'll do virtual stuff to throw at each other. So, again, it's always good to talk to you. And with that, I will leave you with the last word. All right, everybody, please, this virus is getting worse. Please, please, please wear your mask. Keep your social distancing. The holidays are coming up. Don't assume just because it's a family member, they're safe. Keep your distance. Keep your mask on. Wash your hands often. I mean, my hands have never been so clean. (laughs) Yeah, I could probably attest to that. And so please be safe in your personal life. And if you are flying, Please be safe. Do a decent pre-flight. We're going to do a, a podcast on just the pre-flight here pretty soon. Do a, a decent pre-flight. Don't be rushed. I mean, there's all kinds of horror stories. I've been looking at doing the research for the, the podcast on pre-flight. Man, it's unbelievable what's out there. And these these people are pilots, and it's beyond me. I mean, they just show up and jump in and think everything's fine. It flew in, it'll fly out. Yeah, well, sometimes it won't. You know, water in the tank. I mean, just uh, I just reading one where the guy got out of the airplane because he forgot to do one wing, and he was going to take off, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be rushed. He got out, and he got five cups of water out of, out of I forget, the left or the right side. So it's you never know. You never know. Those pre-flights are all written because of previous mistakes that people have made. Some of them are fatal. So please, if you're going to go flying, do a good pre-flight. Make sure you don't take any risks. Because holidays are coming. And and for NTSB investigators, we all knew that the holidays always brought sadness and a lot of accidents. Virtually every year, we saw it. We shared the pain of the families. Because people are thinking about other things and they go jump in the airplane and forget to do something or push themselves to do something because this time of the year, the weather's not always the best. So please, please be safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.